After we recorded the episode you're about to hear, the Eastern Sierra experienced a major snowstorm that impacted travel considerably and that produced major avalanche risks. As our episode's guest points out, we encourage our listeners to be safe and cautious when traveling in the Eastern Sierra, as conditions can change rapidly. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you your adventure books and conversation, your ABCs from 11,000 feet. I'm your co-host, Christopher, and with me is... Stacy. Co-host Stacy. Co-host Stacy. <laughs> and uh, uh, our third virtual participant, as always, is producer Doug. Hey Doug, how's it going? Hi Doug. Digital Doug, here and ready. <laughs> Awesome. Digital dog, yep. awesome. Yep, yep, yep. We're all a little bit digital these days. So, yeah, Stace, it's digital still... and Digital and punchy. A little punchy this morning. <laughs> we are yeah, a little sure. punchy, uh, which hopefully will make it more interesting to listen to. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Always. Stuff, stuff may come out of our mouths. We may <laughs> get letters. Um, <laughs> we would love yeah. letters. We would love that. That would Letters would be good. Emails, no, not not tweets, but you know, emails, emails, Instagram, Instagram. posts. Yeah, yes, O two right. starved Instagram. Yes. So yeah, you know, it's we're recording in January, and it's a warm, dry January, Stacey. It's it is like April. I mean, it looks like April. You know, like living in Crowley. Granted, you know, we don't get the the amount of snow that um, Mammoth does, but. We almost all the snow that we had is gone, um, and it's been warm. It's been love. I mean, it's lovely. It's beautiful, but it's not what we need at this point. Yeah, and not a whole lot of opportunity for us to try to go snowshoeing, which we've been trying to do. Yes, maybe maybe this now. week. Maybe this week. I'm optimistic because we have we do have some chances of snow coming in over the weekend. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm looking forward to it. And hopefully by the time this episode is released, there is some snow out there that people yeah. can enjoy. Um, because it is odd for a, a dry winter. But, you know, it does make it easier to go outside and do some other non-wintery things. Yes. Right? And you've been doing quite a bit of that. Yeah, we all have. And so uh, this last weekend, Wills and I went down to the Druid Stone. So for a little context, a lot of our listeners will realize that the Eastern Sierra is kind of a mecca for rock climbers these days, right? Mm -hmm. And all over. But during the winter, normally when there's snow higher up, uh, the the climbing activity goes down into the Owens Valley where there are some really well-known places, the buttermilks, the happy boulders over on the Mesa, and then the Druid stones, which are south of Bishop, but they're up on a hill, kind of like one of the foothills leading into the Sierra. So we just decided on a whim to go do the Druid, Druid boulders, um, trail, which is a, you know, uh, a short trail. It's a kind of, we like to do stuff in the mornings between breakfast and lunch because yeah. then you can have a bigger lunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, you reward yourself with pancakes, which I'm really, really into these days. So, yeah, this is like a five-mile trail. It's just south of Bishop. And, um, you know, there's no snow up there right now. So it was easier to, to deal with. The Druid Stones are large granite rock outcroppings to, um, that kind of dot the whole landscape over there. That The buttermilks are these as well. There's, there's big, gigantic granite rocks all over the area, hence the rock climbing. But this is like a conglomerate of them. And I'm not sure where they got their names from, but when you're up there looking at them and just feeling just how gigantic they are, and they kind of, many of them stand individually or lean on each other, you mm-hmm. do kind of get this sense of otherworldliness. 
so is it kind of like Stonehenge? That's kind of what I'm picturing in my head. <laughs> it's like it's like a random jumble Stonehenge. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly what it is. So um, you 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 said you go up a hill to get to them. <laughs> Yeah. What's the, is there like a big elevation gain? There is. And so, you know, it's only a five mile loop. And so that can kind of lead people to think it's a pretty easy hike, but it's not. It's actually an immediate elevation game of about 1700 feet within two wow. miles. Okay. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good you, climb. You could almost crawl on your hands and knees up that. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have to. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a good kind of switch back up from the valley floor up to at least where the Druid stones themselves are. The loop goes higher. It goes up to about 2000 feet, um, to do the full five, five miles. And the views are spectacular because you're right up on the edge of the valley Stace, and you can Mm, look north towards the Mesa up towards Chalfont Valley and Benton area and up towards Wheeler Crest and Tom's place and south all the way down the valley. And you just have this unobstructed view of not just the Sierra Nevada, but the White Mountains and the Inyo Mountains and Westgard Pass. It's it's oh, really just a beautiful place. And because the hike is really difficult, it's rated hard on many trail maps. Um, it's not overly populated. We That's went up, nice. Yeah. So when you get up there, you're not dealing with crowds. Now, I haven't mm. done this in the middle of summer, so I'm not so sure that's always the case. <laughs> Rock climbers um, can be pretty um, diligent in getting to where they need to get. Um, But this isn't a place for amateur rock climbers. These people have to hike an elevation gain of 1,700 feet very Mm -hmm. quickly with all their gear on their back before they even start climbing rocks. So um, you're not seeing a whole lot of people. And, in fact, we got up there fairly early in the morning and didn't see rock climbers going up until we were descending ourselves. I will, will point out, if any listeners are interested in, in doing this trail, it's easy to access. You do need to look it up online to understand where the trailhead is because it's not um, very well marked, marked. Mm-hmm. Um, as many trails around here are not. But you do need, you do need hiking poles for this, especially mm. if you're not used to doing steep trails because otherwise you'll do your knees in, you might hurt yourself. It's really kind of like what you were describing up at the Mono Lake Fishers. There's there's kind of a lot of granitics there. There's a lot of ball bearing sand. Yeah, like slide your way down this hill very easy if you're not careful, and so those hiking poles really do come in handy. So you can definitely. <laughs> I like to, I love I like to have my hiking poles when I'm coming down a steep. I don't care so much about when I'm going up, but coming down. Right. Yeah. No, you're yeah. right. You're right. I didn't use them at all going up. I just carried them, but I yeah. certainly used them coming down. And it wasn't like you're leaning on them. You're just kind of using them for balance. Balance. Yeah. And 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 looking impressive to people who are coming <laughs> up. Um, my favorite thing coming down a trail is, you know, I maybe I wasn't winded for this one because it was a short hike. But if I'm really winded and it was a long hike, I'll just gather up all my breath and say, hey, have a great time to whoever I'm passing, go, who's going up. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> but we did pass a couple trail runners coming down this. So we were put to shame. There are, there are people who were running that very steep. Is, that's so, so I, I know when I, when I'm out hiking and I've, you know, gone, you know, five or six miles already and I'm, I just have a ways to go. And then I see people running like yeah. either past me or, you know, coming towards me. I always feel like, oh, I, you know, it makes me feel so bad. Why are I mean, I'm just hiking. You know, part of me feels that. And part of me is like, I want to cheer the person, like more power to you. You know, we have a couple friends who are mountain runners, one who lives in Italy and runs the Alps. Right. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, it's not easy, but it's a certain, it's a lifestyle and it's a commitment and yeah, more power to them for being Definitely. To it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, and then, and then do you ever get the, the feeling of like, for me, no matter how hard the hike is going out, Mm-hmm. No matter how hard it is or no matter how long we've been hiking, when I get to the point where we're coming back and I can see the car or see my house or whatever, I always get this feeling of sadness. Oh, <laughs> it's almost over. Reality is waiting for me. Yeah, we do kind yeah. of get that. Like, it, And it, again, depends on the hike for us. Um, mm-hmm. 
we kind of have a distinctive color truck, so we can always pick it out of the parking area, and you can <laughs> see it in a long distance. It's like, oh yeah, we're almost there. If like I'm really exhausted, um, but more often than not, it's what you just described, which is like, oh, it's it's over. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> you kind of want to turn around and go back, but no, can't. I used to that. feel that way when I was running races. Really? Even you know, half marathon, marathon, it doesn't matter. You know, the length. Mm-hmm. When after I crossed the finish line, I was always sad it was over. I was like, oh, I could have done better. Oh, I wish, you know, I want <laughs> to do it again. But, but isn't that common? I mean, like you put I so much so. effort into prepping for it, and it's such an event in your life at that moment that when it's over, it's like, oh, now what? You know? Yeah, or, exactly. Yes. So, yeah. But, but this sounds great. Yeah, listeners, the Druid Stones, they're beautiful. It's worth the hike if you can kind of do it safely and you, you're healthy enough to do a steep trail. Um, highly recommended. It. It's fairly easy to do in the wintertime, too, because there's just, even when the snow does arrive in the mountains, um, there's less snow down there. So you can kind of kind of get to it. But, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to drag our resident geologist, Joe Adler, and make him do it with me. <laughs> He would like that too, I know. As would Lola. And Lola, of course, Lola. Of course. (laughs) Okay, listeners, take a deep breath and we'll be right back. Ample oxygen is a basic requirement for human molecular metabolism. Welcome back, listeners. We have arrived at the B book section of the podcast. Let's do the cheer. One, two, three. Yay! Yay! Oh, Doug, you chimed in too. That's awesome. You guys need some support. We appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. (laughs) I know. Well, we're still working on the cheer, but at least we're being more synchronous with the the cheer. So that's something good. Um, Yeah. So today we are going to do one of our favorite themes for the books, and that's books that were turned into movies or television shows. We've done this before, and we thought it was time to do this again. And Christopher, I'm going to start with you because you wanted to talk about this for a while. Yeah, yeah. So we should context for (laughs) listeners. Part of the reason people like talking about books to movies or books to TV is because people have opinions, right? Yes, and strong ones at that. (laughs) Strong ones. And we were both talking about – TV shows that we either liked or didn't like and how they were based on books. And so, um, yeah, so that's what we're talking about today. What I'm going to talk about is the book, a book by Simon Winchester. Simon Winchester is a nonfiction author. He's really well known. He's written quite a few books on different interesting topics over the last 20 or so years. The most current book just came out this week for him, the week that we're recording, called Land. And it's an exploration of property and property ownership through history. So he kind of takes these really esoteric subjects, some of them really big, and tries to make them approachable for the average reader. The book that I'm going to talk about is one that's about 20 years old now, and it's called The Professor and the Madman, A Tale of Murder and Sanity in the Making of the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> which uh, is It's very thought-provoking. It's, it's a provoking very, title. Well, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, you know, murder and the Oxford English Dictionary in the Correct. same sentence. Right. Um, but it, it caught a lot of people's eye back in 1998 when this, when this book came out, including my own. And I really loved the book. I think it's got some imperfections. But what I liked about it is he took this kind of big subject, the Oxford English Dictionary, which for many of our listeners – If you're not familiar with it, librarians know this everywhere because there's always a copy in a library. It's a 20-plus volume dictionary of the English language that Mm -hmm. was started in the 1800s in England, in Oxford, hence Oxford English Dictionary. And it was one of the first comprehensive dictionaries out there. But there's a big story in its creation, which this book goes into. Around the time the book came out and was a bestseller, Mel Gibson optioned the rights to turn it into a movie. And he... Ah took a couple of decades before he could actually pull it off. So the the movie is now out on Netflix as we record this. And 
being a fan of the book, I watched the movie and I had opinions. So Okay, but before you get to your opinions, because I know we're, <laughs> we can't wait. I can't wait. And I'm sure our listeners like that too. And I'm sorry mm-hmm. to delay this, but I have to ask, the book by Simon Winchester, does he write like, um, you know, The Devil in the White City? Is it, you know, is it kind of written like that? Kind of like a page turner, you mean? Yeah, like with yeah. A plot? Yes. Yeah, to a degree. I would say with a little bit less finesse than Eric Larson would have approached it with. Okay. Um, but he does focus on two different characters here, two different historical figures who basically brought the dictionary about. So Got it. Okay, get, thank you. Yeah. Please. <laughs> so... Uh, Oxford English Dictionary, a little bit more history. Before the Oxford English Dictionary, there are very few comprehensive dictionaries out there. And it was the first dictionary that was envisioned that would go back and trace a word's usage throughout time and, if possible, back to its origin. So you can go online and look at it if you don't have a physical copy to access. But if you look up a word in the Oxford English Dictionary, there will be many entries there saying where it appeared throughout history. Now, Mm -hmm. it comes from a very English perspective. So this is the classic white male English 19th century perspective on life. Um, (laughs) But it is the English language. And it it is pretty definitive. You know, when you think of back through time, and and Simon goes into this in a whole chapter on Shakespeare, when Shakespeare wrote his plays, and Shakespeare had an immense uh, control of language Mm -hmm. and different words and, and how he applied it, there was no available dictionary to the man. There were, you know, a few handmade dictionaries and churches and what have you, but, you know, it wasn't like William Shakespeare could pull off a dictionary off the shelf and look up a word. So, you know, this was kind of a new new thing, even in the 1800s, to have a comprehensive dictionary that captured the whole English language, or at least attempted to. The lead editor in charge of creating this dictionary was James Murray. He was a Scotsman. He was kind of eccentric. Hmm. He was really fascinated by words and language. He once tried to teach cows how to interpret Latin <laughs> or, you know, pasture, you know, bossing them around the pasture and what have you. Um, So he was just really kind of a weird dude, but he was well set up to kind of undertake this project that Oxford University was launching to create the dictionary. And James Murray's approach was kind of the first use of what we know today as crowdsourcing, where, Mm. you know, we ask all sorts of people to contribute to something to create it. He put out an appeal through booksellers and publishers with little flyers and books for people who would be interested in participating and got thousands of responses and thousands of people who helped send in words and definitions to his team that they would then vet and either add to the dictionary or not. Now, today... We take this for granted. If anyone uses right. Wikipedia to Google something, to Google a definition, if you're on Wikipedia, you're on a crowdsourced platform. You That's know? kind of crazy to think, you know, like I'm trying to imagine how would you vet something if you're in, 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 in London and you get a word sent in to you from somebody from Scotland, mm-hmm. how do you vet, you know, at that time, how would you go about vetting whether that what they said was true, you know, I mean, that would seem to be a very arduous task. It was more arduous than they anticipated. You know, they had the wealth of the, of the libraries of Oxford university mm-hmm. at their disposal. So they could go back and kind of double check. And as part of their vetting process, his team, but what they originally thought would take about four years ended up taking 70 years. Oh, my. <laughs> so it was a bigger project than they thought. Like, yeah. We all, we all do that. The right. other, other main character of this book is a man by the name of Dr. William Minor, who mm-hmm. is an American. He's a veteran of the Civil War, um, was a medic for the Union, and saw a lot of really disturbing things and was also kind of a disturbed person just to begin with. He you know, uh, was a rampant womanizer and what have you, but he came from a wealthy family and was very well educated and very erudite and knew how to function in society. 
but he kind of, after the war, got affected by PTSD, basically, mm. what we would know today. Right. Uh, Simon purports that this was could be traced back to a point during the war where he had to take a, a young Irishman who tried to desert the Union Army and brand him with a D on his cheek for <gasps> deserter. Yeah, exactly, which would be traumatic in anyone's life. Right. Um, but in... in Dr. Miner's mind, this all festered into this kind of conspiracy theory in his brain that the Irish were out to get him as a result of that. And so for whatever reason, he ends up in England many years later um, and murders a man who he thinks was pursuing him, but obviously was not, and is committed to an insane asylum for the rest of his life called Broadmoor in England, which is pretty pretty famous. Mm-hmm, and right. for whatever reason, the widow, you know, he's a rich man and educated. So he realizes he's done wrong and he wants to do well by this young man's wife and many young children. So he um, gives money to help support the family, the murdered man's family. His wife comes to visit him. The widow does in Broadmoor. And eventually over a period of a few months, she starts bringing him books. And in one of these books, is a flyer to inviting people to contribute to the Oxford English Dictionary. And that's how the whole thing starts. Ah, okay. And so this guy, Dr. Miner, in the, in the asylum has this whole library of his own stuff, and he works out his own system. And over the years, over the decades, I should say, he contributes thousands upon thousands of definitions to James Murray's team at Oxford. And the two actually strike up a, a literary friendship. They write letters back and forth. Um, and James Murray in Oxford thinks this guy is a medic for the insane asylum and keeps him, keeps inviting him down to visit him in Oxford. And, you know, Dr. Minor keeps making up excuses not to <laughs> until finally James Murray, like after two decades decides to go to the man himself. And it isn't until it's a pretty famous story. It isn't until he actually gets to Broadmoor asylum itself that he understands that Dr. Minor isn't working for the asylum. Right. He's in, in the, the asylum. asylum. <laughs> and they, they strike up a friendship. Um, and, you know, he contribute. Dr. Minor continues to contribute definitions um, to the dictionary. I won't go into the, his whole life details. I mean, this book is over two decades old, so I'm giving away spoilers right and left. It's definitely worth reading. Um, and it's just, you know, fascinating just because, even at the time in 1998 when this book came out, the internet really wasn't the internet that we know today. Things right. were a lot slower. And so mm-hmm. and it makes sense that it might take two decades for them to understand this guy is a murderer. And it became controversial <laughs> when it came out. It was very controversial. And Oxford University had to do a lot of PR and cleanup um, as part of it. Now, that's the basis of the real history. And then Mel Gibson made it into a movie. And I just, I'm just going to flat out say, you know, guys, watch it. If you like it, God bless you. I thought the movie <laughs> adaptation, I thought it was poor. Now, you know, because he, he kind of tried to turn it into a love story um, mm. involving the widow. And Simon Winchester says, you know, basically the widow brought him books, this murderer books for a few months before she got distracted by other things and ultimately died of alcoholism. Um, but he does kind of referring to the man's fixation and womanizing just does kind of wonder at one point whether there was something between the widow of the murder guy and his murderer. And, you know, I kind of read that and thought, well, that's a little bit irresponsible because it's like conjecture out of thin air. But right. That, that's what Mel Gibson took and ran with. Um, and so that's kind of the least believable part of what I think is an otherwise fascinating, fascinating story. So, um, you know, the book is the, the Netflix movie does have Mel Gibson. It has Sean Penn. I will watch Sean Penn in anything. And in this, I think I just told you, Stacey earlier, yeah. he just chews through so much scenery. He probably needed a tetanus shot at the end of <laughs> shooting. Um, but, you know, it's, it's colorful. And if you don't know anything about the Oxford English Dictionary or you don't plan to, walk, to read the book, maybe go ahead and watch it just to kind of get an idea. Because it is just a fascinating thing about how something like this would even right. come up. I do think, though, that the book has the better sweep of drama behind it all than mm-hmm. the less than two-hour 
two hour movie. Mm -hmm. So that's that. It's the professor and the madman, a tale of murder and sanity and the making of the Oxford English dictionary by Simon Winchester. We have a copy in the library or you can get it at your bookstores or you can watch the movie on Netflix. Nice. Well, I think it's, that's not unusual that a movie or television production based on a book doesn't have quite the, you know, the same feeling or, you know, um, you know, it's not quite as, as doesn't have the gravitas of the book. Right. Right. And, you know, this was one of those instances where I could almost just kind of take that stereotypical thing that we hear about Hollywood all the time, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. probably brought in a script treatment for review and producers and get funding and what have you. And someone probably sat across the table at one point in the last 20 years and said, you know, this needs a love story. Right. So, and that's what happened, I think. Yeah, Um, I'm sure. Yeah, there you go. But Stace. Well, okay. So I had a completely different experience. Okay. I'm glad. Yeah. So, however, you know, ironically, the, the book, movie, series, whatever you want to call it, that I chose is also set in Great Britain. Great Britain mm-hmm. in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And that is, the book is called The Duke and I by Julia Quinn. Mm-hmm. The series, read listeners who've, you know, you're, you're no, you, you know, you <laughs> love this, is Bridgerton. Right. Uh, by Sean, produced by Shonda Rhimes and her, her fabulous production group. But I'll talk about the book first. So okay. the book was published in 2000. Mm-hmm. It is the first in the series of what has become 10 novels by Julia Quinn. Uh, the Duke and I was actually a finalist in the 2001 Rita Book Awards, which are awards given by the Romance Writers of America. Didn't know that was a thing until I started researching. <laughs> they are a powerful and influential group, let me tell you. I, I'm sure there are because, I mean... I'm not a romance novel type of person. Not, you know, I mean, I'll read them every once in a while, like a palate cleanser. But <laughs> there are millions of people that are obsessed with this genre of literature. <laughs> you know, at some point we'll have to do an episode on romance novels because we, I have opinions there too. Uh, as, as you would. <laughs> I, and we should do that. And I can't wait to hear those opinions. But back to the Duke and I. So the, the novel is set in the Regency era of Great Britain, so somewhere between 1813 and 1827. Mm -hmm. Um, As I said, it was, uh, this is a collection of 10 novels, and each novel focuses on a different Bridgerton child. So the Bridgertons are the the main family um, whose plight is, you know, is told in in this book. They're... um, each child is named alphabetically. The first one is A, Anthony, and on down. The Duke and I, however, focuses on the fourth child, Daphne, the first, the first girl, and her quest to find a husband. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the kind of the, the one thing that draws all these novels together is there is this gossip columnist in London at the time, um, Lady Whistledown. And so she writes these little uh, missives that come out every day that, you know, it's just a gossip rag. You know, it's like the (laughs) National Enquirer of that time and kind of, you know, goes through all the exploits of what's happened at the last ball and who's going to be betrothed to whom and you know, what mother is pulling her hair out because she can't get her daughter married off, all that kind of, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So that's the, the lady, um, lady Whistledown is her, her, her gossip rag is the theme that goes through all of the, the novels. Okay. And in the Duke and I, Daphne is in her second season. So the season is when all the, the mamas of the rich families who have uh-huh. daughters try to marry their daughters off. And so <laughs> Daphne has already gone through one season with no, no engagements. She wants to marry for love because her parents are very much in love. They, you know, they have this tight, wonderful family. And so she wants to have that too. 
And can I interrupt she, and ask? I'm please, sorry, can I interrupt and ask you a question? Because you're a yeah. parent of yes. two young daughters who are yes. kind of near these ages. What do you think of that whole like you have a season to marry your daughter off thing? I, I, I think it's appalling. <laughs> I, <couldn't, laughs> I, I mean, I would not have wanted to. It sounds appalling. live during that time. I mean, and you know, and then not only do you, you know, do these families try to marry their daughters off. There's reasons why, right? They yeah. they're marrying them off because they want the the they want to ensure their family's financial future, or uh, the you know the person who you know the 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 husband to be, you know, needs an heir to get his inheritance. I mean, there's all these different reasons having nothing to do with with love or attraction mm-hmm. or friendship, you know everything that enters into a marriage, these matches, these arrangements are made without any consideration of that. Right. Right. And that's, you know, that's what makes Daphne Bridgerton kind of an honorable character is that she's like, I'm, I'm not willing to do that. <laughs> and so what she does is the Duke of Hastings comes back to town mm-hmm. and he is this, he's, you know, like the most eligible bachelor of, of the quote unquote season. And she, and he, and he is also best friends with her brother, her older brothers. Mm -hmm. So they strike up a deal because the Duke of Hastings doesn't want to get married ever Mm -hmm. because he's had some family issues Mm -hmm. of his own. And Daphne thinks if she's seen palling around, you know, like the, if the Duke of Hastings is courting her, She's going to be more accessible to other suitors. Right, right. And then she'll, you know, be able to find somebody she loves and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they strike up this deal that, um, that they're going to pretend to be a couple. And then the, the story develops from there. So um, – that's kind of the plot of the book. And the book really just focuses on Daphne and the Duke mm-hmm. and Daphne's mom. And then you've got these, you know, little, this little publication by Lady Whistledown that starts every chapter. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the book is. It reads very, very fast. It's not long. It's not, you know, there's good description. It moves along quickly. It is a, definitely a fun read. Right. Which what you just described is very typical romance, right? There's a Mm -hmm. formula, there's trope, it's simple, and it's designed to be a quick read. Absolutely. And, and I will say I was very tempted to buy the next book (laughs) and, and and keep reading, but I had to, we have another podcast episode coming up in a couple weeks. I had to move on. So, (laughs) however, the series Bridgerton blew my mind. I did. I didn't. I honestly, I did not want to like it as much as I did, but I loved it. (laughs) Why? Why did you not want to like it? I, you know, it's just like, uh, it's just so, you know, romancy, you know, I mean, it's just like, what, what can this bring to the table? Right? No, I should never underestimate Shonda Rhimes. She is amazing. She is the queen bow down to her because everything she does is amazing. And this is not any different. Okay. So first of all, the costumes, the scenery, the expanse (laughs) of this show was, it was beautiful to watch. Right. It was just beautiful to watch. Very visual, right? Yes. And the Duke is very visual. He is (laughs) (laughs) listeners. You, if you've seen it, you know what I mean, okay? <laughs> he is played by this man named Reg Jean Page. Reggie? And yeah, I think I think it's Reg is how I heard him. I heard Jimmy Fallon call him oh, Reg, okay. Reg right. Jean. And he stole he stole the show. Stole the show. Hands he- down. All he does is walk in and, and look like scenery, right? He doesn't really talk a whole lot. No, he does. I mean, he he makes his, you know, well, the Duke. <laughs> 
so his char- so that character has a stutter or had mm. a stutter when he was little. And this was one of the reasons why he's estranged from his family okay. and doesn't want to get married because his dad shamed him. So his mother died in childbirth. Right. And his dad shamed him so badly and hated him. Right. And, and so that's why he has this terrible, stutter. you know, feeling of families and yeah. doesn't want to get married okay. and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So, so he is, he is a great reason to watch the show if you're into that. And, um, it's just, it also, the, the storyline of the, of Bridgerton, the series, and it has just been picked up for a season two. I just mm-hmm. read that this morning. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, is is much more expansive. So you there are like subplots right. in the series. You know, the main plot is this relationship of of Daphne and the Duke, just like the book. Mm-hmm. But um, there you see you get more information about the Featheringtons, who are kind of like the they live across the road in their mansion from mm-hmm. the Bridgertons, and Lady Featherington is trying to marry three daughters off and you you get much more information and see much more about what's going on in their life. There, you know, then the book you never really hear about them at all, mm-hmm. and um, you learn more about um, the brothers uh, and their backstories of Daphne, Daphne's older brothers. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot. Uh, there's a greater richness mm-hmm. to the series than the the book and what I'm told is that the series or at every season will focus on another Bridgerton child will be like the main focus um you know similar to the books which you know every book focuses on a different child but I would expect that you know that we'll still see Daphne and the Duke and what became of them you know in the series as well but the the television show the the netflix series it's just it was done so well and the other unique piece about it is that there's um you know the the cast is multiracial right i like that about that yeah i and it just you know it brought it 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 made it really interesting to bring that in and they do it's not like that's never talked about Right, right. So they they do address that at one point, the queen. And so the queen at that time, um, Queen Charlotte, was married to King George III. And historic, if you look up the history of of that relationship, she actually was multiracial. Mm, Okay. Um, And she had um, ancestry from um, Barbados, I think it was, and... um, and she's played by a, a multiracial character, you know, person. And so it just, it yeah. just, it brings another layer and. It feels more, um, you know, I've watched a few episodes. I'm, I'm not, I totally get why people are just sucked into it. Um, Cause it is very visual. And it also feels very contemporary for that reason. Mm-hmm. Than others, right. Like right. it reminded me of like a Boz Lerman movie or you remember that movie, um, with Kristen Dunst, Marie Antoinette, that Sophia Coppola yes. did like maybe a right. decade ago. And it was yep. like, it was that same kind of feeling. It was very youthful. It was very contemporary, brought in current pop songs, which I understand Bridgerton does too. Yeah. So they do it really, it's so clever. And, and I would, I don't know that I would have picked up on this, but Tessa did. Of course. So you, need they, a, you need a teenager. in the Exactly. Room. So you there, it's one of the, the scenes where they're in the big, you know, they're have, they're at a ball and they have the the quintet playing, and the quintet is playing "Thank You Next" by Ariana Grande, mm. and it's it's be- it sounds so different, it's so beautiful, and so they they sneak in all these contemporary songs as interpreted by these little quintets, and that makes it really fun really? And, and interesting and relatable and. Um, yeah, so I think everybody involved in that series did an excellent job. I can't wait for season two. Um, <laughs> More eye it's, candy. It's definitely, and it's just fun. You yeah. know, it's total escapist, the book and the show as well. Yep. Just complete escapist, 
fantasy and with everything that we've been dealing with, you know, out there in the world um, lately, it was really nice just to sink into that and let everything else go for a little while. So, yeah. I enjoy. I enjoyed both. I probably went on too long. Sorry, listeners, but you know. <laughs> no, I agree. You know, listeners, let this be a lesson that you know we all. You don't have to always talk about highbrow literature or enjoy everything. Um, we all have our palate cleansers. I have yes. mine too, and those include what we watch on Netflix and on TV as well. Definitely. We all need that escape. And and I just I just have to throw in one more thing because sure. I would be remiss. Dame Julie Andrews is the voice of Lady Whistledown in the Netflix series. So there you go. Her and her her quintessential clipped English accent. Yes, and it's it's, she's just perfect. (laughs) It's It's the perfect you know accent on the on the whole show, you know, having, having her involved, you know, so just had to, I just had to throw that out there because I'd be remiss if I didn't, but um, yeah, really enjoyable listeners. If you have any opinions on the professor and the madman or, or Bridgerton or anything that we've shared, talked about today or have suggestions that you think we should check out, please let us know, send us an email, give us a comment on Instagram and, um, yeah, I hope hope you'll take your hey, take some time for yourselves to enjoy what's out there. Yeah, and grab something to grab some hot tea or something and we're going to be back in a few minutes to talk about something completely different. Take care. Oxygen, a colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number 8 and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved, suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast, a colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners, to the C portion of our podcast, The Conversation, where we bring you a unique individual or organization that contribute something unique to the Eastern Sierra Live Work Play that we all love so much. And today we're really excited to have on a guest from the Eastern Sierra Avalanche Center, Josh Feinberg. Welcome, Josh. Hi, Josh. Thanks, Stacey and Christopher. Really, uh, thanks very much for having me. Glad to be here. (laughs) So, um, you know, Josh, I first heard about your organization through one of the talks you guys give at the Mountain Rambler Brewery back when we could do things in person. <laughs> um, it's actually probably a couple of years ago now. So it's always been on the back of my mind. I'm always curious about it. So I'm curious to hear more about it today. But maybe to open things up, you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you came from, and how you ended up in the Eastern Sierra. Uh, sure. Um, let's see. I grew, up, I grew up on the East Coast outside of D.C., Mm-hmm. Uh, suburbia out there. Um, went to college in Virginia, and uh, after college, I, I kind of had a draw to the mountains, so I ended up heading out to Colorado and finding a job teaching some little kids how to ski in Crested Butte, and was introduced <laughs> nice. to what a, a real big mountain was, and learning, <laughs> learning how to ski backwards, and <laughs> oh right, um, with the kids following and all that. Um, I figured that uh, teaching kids how to ski wasn't my calling necessarily. I had a good time, but. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was definitely the hooked by the mountains. Um, right. And, but, uh, during that time, uh, trying to figuring things out, I was also applying to the Peace Corps as I graduated college. And so I got, uh, accepted to Peace Corps in Central Africa. Wow. Um, and that was an incredible experience, cool. uh, quite yeah, a roller coaster of ups and downs and, uh, living in a tiny little village with, uh, no running water, no electricity and, um, yeah, quite a whole different world. Um, but uh, long story short there, one of the people I was in Peace Corps with finished before I did and uh, ended up finding a Forest Service job out in, out in California. And so when I got done with Peace Corps, I got home and uh, this person says, hey, this Forest Service job is kind of cool. You get to go outside a bunch and hike around the woods. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> try that out. Uh, so after substitute teaching for a couple months uh, back east, um, uh, came out this way for uh, a job was uh, working for a program called Forest Inventory and Analysis. And basically it was like a part of a giant nationwide tree forest health census. Uh, mm-hmm. So we would be bouncing around all over California, um, every little nook and cranny, just going to these places and 
measuring trees and finding collecting data about the forest health and how things are changing. Um, wow. which was wow. like a fantastic way to get introduced to the, the California state and all its diversity. Um, I was in the, before I was like, Oh, California, probably like a lot of people in the country think of as like oh, a bunch of cities and a coastline. And, mm-hmm. But man, it's such a mm-hmm. huge diversity of landscapes out here. So, yeah. right. And, um, yeah, just being able to get a taste of that was incredible. Um, then when the season, uh, wrapped up in the in the fall um i had to choose what i was going to do and um i had met a friend of my sister's uh she actually came out here to eastern Sierra before i did and lived in bishop for a while and so i was able to visit her for a week um and just got a taste of like wow there's big mountains in california I thought God, I had all the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh so yeah, when one of her friends that was a ski patroller uh, sarah starosta who lives down at bishop again um mm-hmm. And uh, so after this four season uh, service season wrapped up, I uh, went, went to Mammoth and went and ski tested and uh, barely scraped on to ski patrol. I think I was <laughs> try, still in the process of learning to ski, but uh, you know, Crested Butte did me well, at least introducing me to some deeper terrain and um, <laughs> squeezed on the ski patrol and uh, really quickly um, got into the backcountry uh, from there mm-hmm. and really psyched about learning to try to telemark ski and flopping right. your, your ski around and falling all over the place and trying to not <laughs> fall so much. <laughs> <laughs> Can you describe for our listeners a little bit who may not be familiar with the differences in the types of skiing? We've talked about this before, but what is telemark skiing? So telemark skiing is some people say <laughs> telemarketing skiing. <laughs> <laughs> not quite telemarketing. It's a, uh, it's, it's more of like a cross country style. It's a, your, your, toe is attached to the ski and your heel is not so you kind of can flex up and down and they lets you travel on the flats and uphill you put uh, skins in the bottom of your skis to go uphill and so before they had the randonnée and more technical bindings this is how people got around in the backcountry they would have these free heels and like looser boots and floppy skis and there was a whole different style of having having to learn how to turn because you didn't have this big rigid boot to hold your foot in there so Right. The bend your knee down low and kind of, it's much more dynamic, kind of ups and downs and pretty difficult and especially in variable terrain. But, uh, once you kind of get it and the, it starts clicking for you, it's, it's pretty awesome feeling of just kind of surfing the turns and ups and downs. And like, I think it's right. more dynamic flow to it. So, um, yeah, it's, cool. uh, I got hooked. <laughs> <laughs> so not, so you also kind of alluded to, and I don't want this moment to pass by either. You, you went through a range of vastly different cultures. You know, Maryland and yeah. Virginia is very different than Central Africa, which is also very different than the Eastern Sierra in California, all in what sounds like a very short period of time. How, how, when you reflect on that, how, how do you think about that? Like, how do you think that impacted you? All exposures that I've, that I've gotten to have, I think, uh, it definitely confused me in some ways. Mm-hmm. You feel, boy, Peace Corps really made me, made me feel really privileged for sure and how lucky we are to be in the U.S. and have so many options available to us. And right. being in the village, mm-hmm. you know, especially talking with uh, the the youth in the villages, the, you know, the younger kids were all just full of happiness, even though they, you know, they might eat one meal a day and uh, pretty rough conditions, wow. but smiles and just like laughter all the time. And then really the, the kids kids the teenagers and the young adults i think were really the the ones that hit me the heaviest about you know they, they've seen what outside world is and how how kind of far off and almost impossible it seems like to get there to have these things that some of the rest of the world has and so it's kind of heartbreaking in that way um mm-hmm. yeah and and uh trying to be in a place and figure out like wow how can i i'm supposed to be here helping out people and making their lives better in some way and that was kind of a lot of pressure um right. Also, you know, Peace Corps, you know, two thirds of the goals of Peace Corps is just this cross-cultural exchange and uh, like sharing your culture from where you come from and learning about the culture of these other places. And hopefully, you know, the the peace part of it is getting a better understanding for everybody and understanding that, you know, all these differences, everyone can get along and support each other. And hopefully these connections can can last and, um, yeah, make the world a better place. Awesome. So... Yeah, so quite different than, than D.C. And, and the East Coast. And then, again, this whole metrop- metropolis area out there. And then a little sort of pace of life out in California. Yeah. So, yeah. So you ended up with the Eastern Sierra Avalanche Center. Can you tell us about what your role is there, how you ended up with them, what you do, and a little bit about um, ESAC in general, what, what its purpose is? 
to Sierra Avalanche Center started in the uh, mid 2000s um, as a result of a few de- a handful of dedicated individuals, small volunteers. Um, Nate Greenberg was a big um, driving force in it, and um, mm-hmm. Walter, Walter Rosenthal was the kind of the, the heart and soul of it when it started. He, he was mm-hmm. really the snow scientist and um, dedicated to the backcountry uh, and longtime mammoth ski patrol and patroller and researcher and and uh, just as after the center started he he tragically died as yeah. a lot of you might know in, a, in an accident on the mountain involved emerald right um so that same that same year in 2006 um uh that was i was maybe three or four i guess i started in the eastern sea around 2001 in the winter times and so i'd gotten yeah. into the backcountry um had my a partner CJ Pearson, who was another ski patroller, that we were really on a roll of getting out in the backcountry. Mm-hmm. All, all our days were linked up, and we would get long days in and ski big mountains and steep lines, and we were pretty psyched about that. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I, I, we we invited his his girlfriend out for a day in 2006 with us, and it was supposed to be mellower day, and uh, the winds picked up a bit. And um, again, a long story short, uh, we. Uh, I triggered an avalanche. Uh, got caught in it. Got, got buried in it. Wow. Um, his, um, TJ's girlfriend and a really good friend of mine as well. She she got taken by this avalanche as well over, over oh. some cliffs and trees. And oh man, she, uh, tragically died from that. And that was an immensely hard hard thing to go through. Um, right. Right. That and a lot of responsibility. Um, so after that, I I wanted to try to do something that could uh, help others out and not make right. the same mistake. Um, and so I took a course after that, a little higher level avalanche course. Uh, I had some an Avi One course um, mm-hmm. when I was in Crested Butte when I first started out there. Um, that was a good introduction. So I took a higher level course out in the out in the Rockies, um, and then an opening kind of uh, opened up in Isak. Um, sort of at the same time as I was ski patrolling, uh, that I had some back injury, back issues going on and the, the constant day in and day out of pounding on the slopes. Right. Yeah. And so the ESAC opening opened up and that would be a little more gentle on the back. And at the same time, being able to hopefully be a part of an organization that would help others, uh, be safe, uh, safer out in the back country and help them make good decisions. So, wow. so and what, what is your role at, at this point with ESAC? I'm the lead avalanche forecaster. Um, there's three of us, Chris Engelhart and Steve Mace as well. We've been working together. I think this is the third year all three of us have been working together. Uh, great team, really great guys to be working with. And we have a, a great board of directors. Um, and just we just hired two actually part-time staff to help on some of the administrative outreach events. Um, so we're, we're really it's, – it's, uh, the, the center is going through some great growth and really, really positive direction. So it's That's a – to be part of right now so so in a situation like we're in now where we're you know we haven't had any big snowstorms or there's no you know at least as far as i know no big risk to avalanches what you know are are you preparing for that what what happens during a time like this um yeah it's, it's challenging it's uh you know, it's 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 a lot of work when it's snowing hard and things are changing and uh, there's right. always things to be worrying about and it's dangerous out there. But it's uh, we got to get a little more creative now. I mean, we're still doing daily avalanche advisories. www.esavalanche.org. Um, uh-huh. You can look at there, and uh, we're still we're still doing daily advisories, even though the danger is low. Um, there's daily fluctuations and little little problems that you might look at still, and there's still mm-hmm. there's still always a, a chance you might find some unstable snow out there. So it's always good to uh, to still be paying attention to what you're doing. But right now it's definitely the, uh, the thin conditions and the firm and variable snowpack and all the obstacles, which are the biggest danger out there. Right. So people really have to want it to be getting out right now, but there can be some good spots to go. And it's still always just a, you know, a great, great day out in the mountains to be go cruising around. And if you get a good <laughs> bonus. Yeah, you're right. And Josh, can you, you alluded to it a little bit. Can you kind of tell our listeners a little bit, like, what are the ingredients that go into avalanche forecasting? Like, I wonder how you even do that. Is Do you have, like, a nice pat answer? I could hopefully give you a short version. Um, basically, <laughs> you need snow, you need a, a steep enough slope, and you need a trigger uh, to, to cause an avalanche. And so we look at uh, a huge thing we look at is just the weather forecast. Is it going to mm-hmm. be snowing? Is the winds picking up? 
winds are a huge uh, sculptor of avalanches uh, in this mm. year and in a lot of places, but especially here, like it might not snow for a week and then the winds will pick up in the right way. And all of a sudden, in a matter of hours, the slope can become dangerous. That wasn't the day before. Wow. Uh, wow. So, so weather is for sure important. We have weather sensors that record wind directions and, and temperatures, sunshine, warming slopes. Um, and then we also really um, depend on field observations. So we all get out in the field um, consistently, even when it's low danger, we're out in the field. Uh, Steve and Chris are both out there right now mm-hmm. uh, around and collecting data. Um, and we also have a great observer network. Um, uh, and anyone who goes out in the backcountry, our site is open for observation. So if you get in out there, we really appreciate hearing what people find out there, even if it's, mm. you know, yeah, conditions are safe or here's some weather information. Um, the observations we get through our site are, are tremendously uh, valuable for us. Um, so that those are the main ingredients is basically the weather forecast, the observations that we're taking and, and, you know, snow pits we're digging and just what we're seeing the weather doing when we're out there. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. It seems like it would be every day would be almost a new challenge or every day would be different because the weather in the Eastern Sierra can be so different from day to day. Right. And especially lately, like it's, you know, hasn't snowed in a long time. We've had a, a few forecasts for some snow that haven't come through and, but things are still, there's still some concerns like uh, a few, you know, four days ago, it was like 50 degrees in Mammoth and super warm and uh, sunny slopes were getting moist. And uh, if you hit the right, right on the right area, you could create a little wet slide potentially. And then uh, yeah. picked up. And so it's, yeah, these little, every day is a little slightly different for sure. <laughs> well, that's why we have people in organizations like you. And so um, I noticed that you guys do, you mentioned this earlier that you do some outreach events and it looks like you're doing some online classes that anyone can kind of join like a, a one Wednesday a month or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about what the organization does there? Our main goal is to produce these avalanche advisories to help people make better decisions out there in the backcountry. But another uh, mission of ours is also to uh, promote education and give people awareness about what's going on. And so traditionally in past years, like most things, uh, we were able to get together in person and have events at uh, like the brewery, like you said, down in, in, in Bishop and, and here mm-hmm. in Manhattan, up in June Lake. We'd have have at least three three uh, of those type of education sessions on every year. And uh just like everyone else this year, we're going virtual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, been uh, we've had once one uh, our first education um, event last week, which uh, was tremendously successful. It had almost three hundred people join. Wow! Uh, so we're going to be doing one a month uh, through April. Um, each one is kind of building on the other. Uh, like this last one was more of a backcountry introduction like not necessarily avalanches specific but how to be prepared for avalanches how to travel in the backcountry this next one coming up on this the first wednesday this coming month will be more like avalanche 101 about different types of avalanches and more more Mm -hmm. the nitty-gritty for that kind of thing yeah we'll be going into like more mid-season concerns after that the month after that and then when april comes around more uh spring travel concerns because that brings up a whole nother set of issues um so yeah that's it's gonna be um on our site and Facebook and, and Instagram, we'll be we'll be um, pushing out when those are going to happen. Uh, but again, every first Wednesday of the month, 6 p.m., uh, they'll be happening and they're free. And uh, yeah, Great. encourage people to check them out. And they'll be cool. recorded as well. So if you can't make it, you can you can check that out. And listeners, we'll link all of this. We'll link their website and their Facebook page on our show page so that you can go and find out more just from their website. There's a, quite a bit of information information there. So Josh, it seems like it's a, it's pretty, can be a pretty stressful, uh, work environment that you're in. What do you do to relax? And, you know, when you're, when you're not seeking out possibilities of avalanches. Yeah. When it's, when it's snowing and things are going on, it is, uh, you know, hopefully we're providing information that can potentially save someone's life if it's taken in the right way. So we, yeah. we take our job seriously yeah. and, we try to word things in ways that are that are precise and that aren't. Uh, you know, you could talk about all the different possibilities out there and go on for paragraphs and paragraphs, but many people <laughs> are pretty short. <laughs> so you have to <laughs> zero in on what's important and focus on that and hit on home on that and, and realize like sometimes less is more. Um, but in terms of uh, what I like to do for fun, uh, I got down to Bishop last week, went for a bike ride down and uh, down some of the trails down there, which was super fun. Uh, I like to. 
like to rock climb as well. Um, so, so, you know, like many people in the Eastern Sierra, those are, those are things I enjoy as well. Um, and yeah, just being able to uh, boy pick up a book and read occasionally. <laughs> I admit it hasn't been too often too lately, but, uh, <laughs> I want to more and more. And, uh, yeah, going out for a run in the hills right now, you can go just outside of Mammoth and find yeah. run around. And so it's, it's, even though there's no snow, the weather has been beautiful. So trying to do outside. Yeah. 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 Well, you hit on a couple of things. Good answer. So we just, we just earlier in this episode talked about the Druid stones outside of Bishop for, for rock climbing. Not that either of us climb um, <laughs> <laughs> and reading. So let's get to Josh, we talked about this. What 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 are you reading right now, or what books would you would you recommend to our listeners? I've uh, there's a couple books right now I'm in the middle of. Uh, uh-huh. One's one's called Barbarian Days: A Surfing Life uh, by William Finnegan, um, mm-hmm. and this is a, a book that actually my fiance's son uh, turned me on to. He's he was reading it. He's out in Santa Barbara right now, and uh, uh, just started college out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, see a, a book about a California kid. Uh, growing up surfing and moving to Hawaii and then getting getting older and then traveling the world uh, chasing waves and uh, his it's uh I'm only about a, a quarter of the way through but it's it's a great book about what surfing is all about and the sort of the soul of it and uh, how how captivating it can be um, that so one, that's <laughs> an amazing book and it came out just a few years ago but it really a lot of people really enjoyed that book I think it won a, a major prize too I'll have to look it up so I was, I've never heard of it before recently. So yeah, it was, I'm enjoying it for sure. Um, I'm a, uh, intermediate surfer. I think it's <laughs> intermediate, even a little bit, <laughs> giving myself the benefit of the doubt on that. But uh, surfing is one of the hardest sports I've ever tried. Just, uh, you know, I feel like I'm pretty athletic and tried a bunch of different things, but man, there's so much going on in surfing that <laughs> I, I agree. I, I lived in, I moved up here from San Diego and spent, Spent my fair share of time getting knocked around in the water, and I love it. But I'm I, I'm I'm not proficient at all. But it it takes a lot to learn to surf. My husband is a surfer, so yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> so, what else are you reading? Halfway through the How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, um, ah. uh, that he wrote the On the Wars Dilemma right. as well. This is all about uh, basically the psychedelics and mind-changing drugs, and uh, it's becoming more. I mean, it's, it's it's giving the history back in the '60s of when these things were being experimented with, and then it, it's going more into today where it's uh, becoming more accepted. And and some some uh, there's a lot of therapeutic uses for mm-hmm. LSD and and mushrooms and um, just kind of psychedelic things. And so it's it's very interesting kind of history and how how effective how how these things can affect your mind and how if administered in like in therapeutic ways, uh, how powerful they can be. Right. Um, so I'm only again, halfway through that one as well, but I'm um, looking forward to continuing it. And uh, so it's just, um, yeah, it's interesting. I haven't had a whole lot of experience with that myself, but uh, it's, <laughs> it, it piques my interest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is an interesting topic nowadays, especially, you know, as you know, um, therapeutic marijuana is legal. There are more stores popping up and people will want to understand more about it, you know, regardless of the experience that they've had. Uh, pretty intriguing. And, you know, there's been uh, cultures that have been in existence for thousands of years that you've have used as therapeutic, uh, psychedelic drugs in some form or another, whether it's like uh, roots of plants in, in Africa or peyote in, in South America that have been using this in their traditional cultures for, <laughs> mm-hmm. long for centuries. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, a, let's see, a book, uh, books that I recommend, um, just in terms of the avalanche scene, uh, uh, Snow Sense by, by Jill Fredstone and Doug Fessler is a great almost pocket-sized book for introduction into avalanche, uh, traveling in avalanche terrain and, and the essentials. I think mm-hmm. that's a great, great initial read for somebody. And if someone who's more into like digging into the depths and geeking out, uh, it takes a lot more attention, but staying alive in Avalanche Train by Bruce Tremper is a great, great resource. It's more of a, yeah, a resource. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. Um, but one of my favorite authors is Tom Robbins. I, I always. Uh, oh, yeah. Books. Um, and 
like jitterbug perfume or even cowgirls get the blues. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely always enjoy his, his take on life and like the way he exposes humanity, like all the different depths of it. Um, I just really love it. And I love how the, you can start reading his book and beginning, I'm, I'm just always confused. I'm like, what the hell is he? I need to reread this. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, partway through, it all starts coming into place and clicking in. So I think that's a really cool ability that he has to like start talking about things, but not having to explain them and then just relying on the fact that they'll probably all put it, get put into place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and he's a, he's a, such an influential author too. I mean, he's been around for donkey's years now. I think his most recent book came out maybe five, six years ago as nonfiction. Um, but you're not the first one to, to say that Tom Robbins, um, I think in, impacted a lot of readers in the last few decades. He's, he's a pretty prolific writer too. So he's got a wealth of books, some of which have been made into movies. Right. Exactly. Which <laughs> we, we talked, talked about, about earlier. earlier. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good range of books though. So, so let's ask you this question, which is kind of a loaded question. We're starting to ask our, our listeners. Um, do you read more than one book at a time on a regular basis, Josh, or you, are you always kind of juggling reading? and forth right now i'm juggling i've got i've got these uh these two books and then uh sometimes there's a self-help book thrown in there as well so right mm -hmm. now i'm juggling uh but i do like to i do like to just get into one book and like all right just get into it because if i don't read something for a while then i go back to it and then i'm like who's that character again so <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it could be better sometimes so um yeah i do both i think yeah um, i think a lot of us do yes Definitely. Stacey, you more so, Stacy, now than before, right? Oh, def. Yeah, this is a new thing for me. Juggling multiple books at a time—that's—it's a new phenomenon in my life. And <laughs> I agree with you, Josh. It's hard to, you know, pick up a book and put it down, and then remember, like, who was this again? And right. um, but necess—it's life necessitates trying to cram in. There's so much out there that you just got to do it sometimes, you know. <laughs> Well, Josh, listen, it's been great having you on. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, we really appreciate it, Josh, and you stay safe out there, and um, hopefully we get some snow soon that everybody can be enjoying the winter weather together. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Oxygen Star podcast. Please remember you can find us on Instagram at O2Starved, and we have a Facebook page and our website, oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. So leave a comment. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. We'd really appreciate that. Stay safe out there and have a great week. We'll see you again soon. See you soon. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.